Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. I'm Art Pappas, founder and CEO of Bullhorn, and I'm excited to be here. Art, thanks so much for making time to join us on the Happy Podcast. Uh, before we dive in and talk all of the great things you're building at, at Bullhorn, give us a thumbnail version of uh, career prior to that. Uh, my, my very lengthy career prior to uh, starting my company at 24 years old was uh, I was um, I got into software engineering programming um, my junior year of college at Tufts, and um, I uh, I was an intern and uh, was was doing data entry as an intern and asked if I could try to automate the uh, the data entry job that I was doing because I noticed there was like a floppy disk. This is back when people used floppy disks that had all the data. And we were printing it out and like hand keying it into the database. And I said, well, let me, like, can't we write like a computer program to import the data? And the guy said, okay, knock yourself out. Um, and I, I figured out how to do it. And so they said, oh, you should, you should go be in the R&D department. And uh, that I got the software bug. I stayed there uh, through my, through my senior year. And then a year and a half after, and then I got the startup bug and I went to go work for a terrible startup that was like the only startup in 1999 that couldn't figure out like how to raise money. Um, and they ran out of money um, in, in August of 1999. They gave me four weeks, three weeks severance. And um, I had just met my co-founder um, about a week prior and, through a friend. And my friend said, hey, you wanna start a company? This guy wants to start a company. I was kind of thinking of starting my own company. I hadn't really given it like a lot of depth, but uh, but all of a sudden I was stressed in this situation where I, I had a little bit of money to spare. I thought, you know, three weeks covers like plenty of expenses. I bet, you know, within three, four months we'll be making money. That'll be fine. I was very wrong about making money, uh, but it was enough to propel me into starting a business and my co-founder and I, uh, we, we started together in, uh, yes, yeah, like August of 99. Oh, wow. That was a long time ago. Yeah. So that, you know, very short career as a software engineer, but, um, but it was helpful because I knew I wanted to build software on the internet and didn't ever want to deploy software to, uh, to people's servers and their in their data centers, I knew that. That's pretty interesting because I'm currently finishing up the book. Uh, it's called "That Will Never Work." Uh, maybe you've heard of it. It's the Netflix story. Uh, it's in the late '90s as well, and how they went they went through some type of successful exit for their previous startup, and then they were debating what type of company to start. And then just, uh, you know, a lot of similarities in the sense how they've met and also some of the ideas they were bouncing off the wall. I heard that will never work so many times in the first 10 years of this company. You should write your own version of that will never work part two. It's a great title. It's a great title. 
It's an amazing title. So that brings me to the further question is, I'm pretty sure you've told that story many times, but maybe high level, how did you come about the particular need that Bullhorn was serving in terms of actually launching that type of product? Yeah, good question. It wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't because we had been to business school and had a thesis around a market opportunity and knew the size of the market was massive and it was serendipity. We actually went after a totally different problem to solve. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with Upwork and Fiverr, we were doing that uh, freelance marketplace back in 99. That was our original idea. Um, Barry Hinckley and I, that my original co-founder uh, and Roger Coven, our, our third co-founder, he, he and I, um, Barry and I kind of sort of batted around this idea and he had an idea about like creating a place where creatives could put their, their digital work and showcase their work. And I said, well, you know, but like you'd really want to hire somebody um, on a platform like that if you're looking for a graphic designer. And so we launched an Upwork competitor. Back then, Upwork was called Elance. And um, it was guru.com and Elance. And uh, there was there a whole bunch of other players, like ton, Opus 360. There were tons of freelance marketplaces. Um, Opus 360 went public. And it was like this crazy time. Everybody was raising venture capital. And we raised about $5 million of venture capital and ended up burning it like idiots. Like, I mean, honestly, we could have taken it, put it in a trash can and just to burn cash. And like, it would have had the same outcome. So we were like a really good cash incinerator for about 18 months. And then um, back in 2000, there was the dot-com bust. And all of a sudden, like nobody could raise money. And, um, and what, what we determined was it was really easy to get workers on our platform. It was really hard to get anybody to want to hire people over the internet. A lot of like corporates didn't even have internet connections. Like they didn't have browsers on the desktop back then. I, so I would go and sit with like hiring managers and like download Netscape Navigator. Like, and I bring like, I would bring a, a zip disk with Netscape Navigator on it and try and install it and then try to figure out how to connect them to the, the network. It was like, it was really bad. So, um, so that we were like, this isn't going anywhere yet. Like this idea will be awesome in 10 years when the internet's more accepted in, in corporate America other than for email. Um, and so we had to pivot. And one of our investors said, look, you're running out of money. You're not going to be able to raise any more money with no traction. I have a friend who's running a staffing agency and they have all sorts of problems with IT. Would you ever want to trade notes? Because you're kind of like trying to be an online staffing business. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. So we had the meeting and it was like, instantly there was this massive problem. And it was like, okay, I have I service customers all around the country and I have multiple offices. We used to be one office and we all used to huddle around a conference room table and a whiteboard and we would talk about who we could get to fill orders for our customers. Like how are we going to fill these orders all, all over the, the, the country? Well, now that we're five, six offices, we can't huddle around the whiteboard. Um, so we get on conference calls and we blast emails to each other all day long and each office has their own database. And I said, whoa, 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 
why don't you just have one database on the internet? Yeah. And that was where, that was the, the moment Bullhorn was born, really, really born um, after 18 months of futzing around. Um, and that became our first paying customer. And it was a very difficult process getting them a system that actually worked. Um, but after months, the, the owner of the business said to me, you should sell this to every staffing firm in the world. Now that was a business plan. It's like, okay, there, like there's a mission, there's a vision. And we've been on that journey for the last, you know, our mission is a hell of a lot more pithy and, and poignant. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we put the world to work by uh, powering the technology that drives the staffing industry. But, um, but back then it was just, let's go just build software to sell to every staffing firm in the world. So 20 plus years later, we're still on that journey and, you know, we're probably only like 20% of the way there. <laughs> wow, what a fascinating story. And you will hear all these great stories about VCs and investors not adding so much value to the portfolio companies. But this is actually completely opposite where you mentioned one of your investors had the suggestion for you to talk to one of the staffing companies. And, you know, the big aha moment in terms of here's a big problem that needs fixing. And there's a big difference between angel investors and venture investors. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. That, that, was is an, true. An, that was an angel who said that. The VC said, shut it down and send me whatever's left. Oh, wow. Well, there, there's a reason they call them angels, right? So that's a perfect uh, <laughs> perfect definition of that. So yeah, fast I, forward. I mean, VCs, I, we've had great relationships with venture capitalists later in, when we got to 13 million. And we, we sort of bootstrapped after that, which was odd. We went from venture to more bootstrapped with less than half a million dollars in the bank, we, we built a profitable business yeah. um, inside, of, inside of 12 months. Um, but then we, we took on venture again when we hit 13 million, um, Highland Capital and General Catalyst, and they were great partners. And then um, we, we, took, we, we worked with private equity sponsors over the last few years who've been fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, now the business is, you know, 1200 employees and over 10,000 customers. And wow. So, wow. so it's a very different world in the early days, but um, you know, we still have that like entrepreneurial connection to our customers. Like how do you, you know, how do you build something that solves a burning pain? Like, like my first customer had where like they couldn't collaborate to do their job. And then technology all of a sudden transformed the way they were working. And we just look for moments like that and opportunities like that with our customers. And there's more and more every year, there's new opportunities that emerge. And, for sure. For sure. And, I want to double click on that a little bit further um, in terms of growing from, you know, a smaller scale startup into, into, you know, full blown enterprise and be able to build and foster that culture of, you know, customer first and building, you know, the culture of innovation how did that evolve over time? And, you know, for you as an executive to be able to keep up with so much change and so much, I guess, yes. pivot as well in the strategy, what was the thought process around that? And how, how were you able to just basically maintain and foster the continuous, you know, culture of innovation? Yeah, maybe, um, maybe in business school, they teach you how to um, build at, an excellent customer experience engine. But um, 
I had to learn it by making mistakes. And I knew, I knew how to treat customers. My co-founders knew how to treat customers um, because they were gold to us. And we knew that they, they were critical to our survival. But, um, you know, when you grow and you hire people, initially you're, you're able to, um, you're able to sort of monitor what's going on, right? Like you're able to like hear people on the phone and okay, like I'm sitting next to the person who's working with the customer and I can intervene when something goes wrong or the customer knows that they can escalate to me and that's fine. As we got to a hundred people, 150 people, that became impossible. So once we crossed over that hundred person uh, line, I lost all touch with how we were um, engaging with our customers. And what was interesting was our retention of customers stayed very high. Customers weren't leaving, but they were becoming more and more disgruntled with the products and the services as the company got bigger and I got further and further away from it. And I didn't have a process for ensuring that we had a culture of creating a great customer experience. And so I had to sort of be confronted with my first customer called me and said, you know, Art, it's been great. It's been 10 years, but I'm going to leave. And I dove into why. And, you know, she explained that, like, look, you know, you're the service is not great. Your employees don't seem to care. And, you know, and I can sense that from the way that the product hasn't really evolved the last couple of years and the support team and the sales team. All they care about is increasing my price. And so I went on this journey to sort of map out, like, what are the th- what are the behaviors that great employees at Bullhorn should should exhibit to make our customers happy. And I mapped them all out with with a few of our key employees to create these core values. And I said, okay, bonuses are now gonna be based on how well you adhere to the core values. And our mission is, is, you know, we need to, it's customer focused. And our core purpose is to create an incredible customer experience because if we don't do that, we don't deserve to exist. And people really, um, thought that was ridiculous at first because you know what about you know what about like you know having revenue goals and things like that and I, I turned the whole company on driving our net promoter score up and um, initially there was a lot of pushback because people didn't want to be graded on these core values that were behaviors that they would have you know you have to get back to people in a timely manner you have to uh, if you say you're going to do something you have to do it you have to follow through. Um, you have to leave people wanting to work with you again. Um, all these sort of things that became uh, important all of a sudden um, and showed up on people's uh, annual reviews and quarterly, we started to move to quarterly reviews. It moved the needle and our net promoter score went from negative 50, really bad, to positive 50. Wow. And it, it didn't take very long for that to happen. It took about uh, 18 months and our glass door went from like a three, five to a four, five. Nice. Um, and so it turned out that like treating your customers well meant that your employees also would love working at the company. And so it was like, a, we created this, um, virtuous cycle mm-hmm. and, and now that's sustained. Like, so we, we know that we know what we need to do to create an incredible customer experience. And we, 
we know how we reinforce it with the culture. It's not through KPIs. Those KPIs are lagging indicators of how you're doing. It's through ensuring that your employees are living the values. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. That's an exciting story. In terms of you, you help companies of various size, you know, attract and retain the top talent. In terms of your own culture and your strategies to be able to surround yourself with the top performers, Talk, talk to us a little bit from that perspective in terms of practical recommendations that really help you succeed in the space of being able to attract the top talent to your teams. I think the number one thing that attracts talent is um, in, 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 I think that like back in, you know, 2010, it was all about like, A, you have to have a recruiting engine, right? Like you can't, just say, oh, we're going to post jobs and hope that people find their way through the process. Like we, we worked really hard in 2012 to build a really good recruiting engine. So we have an in-house team. We have KPIs and metrics that they have to drive to. And, and we really focused on like, how do we interview? How do we make sure that like when we hire people, like we're consistent in the way that we evaluate people for behavior and for aptitude uh, we use standardized testing. We use behavioral testing. Okay, so that was important, but it, it's not enough in 2020 because everybody goes to Glassdoor. And I got on board with this about 10 years ago, started saying like, look, if our culture is going to be laid bare, like it has to be good because otherwise you won't be able to attract people. And, um, you know, people said, oh, well, we could just like ask, tell employees to post nice things. And so that's, as soon as you get one employee to say that I was told to write this, the whole profile is, is garbage. And so, um, so, you know, we had to do it the, the right way. And now that's a big part of how we recruit. Like it, yes, we post jobs. Yes. We have a recruiting team. Yes. We do outbound. Um, we do a lot of inbound recruiting, but it's, uh, it's all about your culture. Your culture attracts people. Um, and if I always talk about like this virtuous cycle, it's like, if you build great products and services, your clients will refer you business. Therefore you'll grow. If you grow and you promote from within, that will create a culture that gets stronger and stronger as you grow. Um, and that's what we do. So like out of 1200 employees, we probably promoted 500 this year. Oh, well, so it's it's a real promote from within culture, like well, big time. Which leads me to a further point. You know, promoting from within, obviously, you know, in your example specifically, it's a, one of the you know solid strategies to retain the top talent. Is there anything else that you can add in terms of be you know win the war on retention? We hear that a lot, especially in the current times, with so much opportunity for candidates out there on a the global scale. Uh, you know, news amplifies everything. So in terms of building that, I guess, environment of retention where top talent is very much in invested into staying, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix, right? It's going to be people quit their manager. Um, if they like their manager, but they're paid a ton, they'll stay. But if they hate their manager, they're going to go. Um, if they, uh, if they, like their manager, but they're not paid a lot, that's a problem too. If they like their manager, they're paid well, or fairly at least, 
um, but they don't feel that their career is going anywhere. That that's the other the other factor. And so, how do I feel like my career is going somewhere? Well, some of that is direct career pathing, right? And we spend a lot of time on that. Um, we spend a lot of time making sure we're paying proper. We we spend a ton of time on leadership development so that we have good leaders. Because if we have bad leaders, it all falls apart. Um, and then the last bit is like career path is also, I believe I'm working for a winning team and the company is doing something meaningful. And um, that's, I think, oh, you make, you make software for the staffing industry. Yeah, but our cut, we have 200,000 recruiters that log in every day to use our platform to put the world to work. Work is hugely meaningful for people. And, you know, I think you know that. And finding a way to connect everybody in the company to like, okay, I'm building software that helps people achieve their livelihood and sustain their families and grow their careers. That's people want to be part of something like that. But it all like you can't have just one of those things, right? You got to have all four. Absolutely. So you've been in the industry for for a minute now, and you've seen it go through all kinds of different iterations and, and cycles being, you know, talent acquisition space in general, just very cyclical as well. Uh, personally, what, what trends are you mostly excited about these days um, in terms of the insights, where the markets are going? What are you, what are you researching? What are you excited about? Yeah, I think there's a lot of hype about AI, um, but we're starting to see evidence that when you have large volumes of hiring data and outcomes data. And, and um, you start to use pattern recognition around the AI algorithms to say, okay, there is an actual correlation here between um, you know, items on a resume and success in a role. Um, that's very exciting. It's still very early in the journey there, but um, you know, that, that's been a promise for a long time. And I think where people got stuck in the last 20 years was like, I'm taking job descriptions and resumes and trying to match the two. Resumes are much better than job descriptions, I think, of describing the person and their journey. But if you can start to take job descriptions and what is or resumes and a successful outcome, like people with resumes that had this kind of progression or these kind of things on them tend to do well at this company, that's, um, that's a better signal mapping. And, you know, I think now we're in a position to do that. You're starting to see that on the corporate recruitment side as well. But um, yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about the whole digital journey that we're on with our customers now to say, you know, everything's going to be online, mobile, self-serve. It's not going to be self-serve alone. It's going to be combo of tech and touch, right? Because if I'm thinking about changing jobs or I'm, I'm, I'm an IT contractor and I'm thinking about going to work at a new uh, organization, I've, I've been contracting for Google for six months, but now I'm thinking of going to Amazon. I want to talk to somebody about that. You know, that's, I need, I need somebody to, to, to bounce ideas off. The recruiter has a role, but I might not want to talk to the recruiter until I know enough that I can do, you know, self-service at my own pace, you know, and sort of like explore roles or, you know, look at availability or look at things like look at rates, things like that. What is, what is this job pay? Like, then I want to engage. And then, and then after I engage and I decide I want to work there, I certainly don't want to 
be emailing and taking photos of my license and sending it to somebody. I want to do that all in an app that's secure and fast and easy that I can do it at my own pace. You see that um, that's a big that's a big movement. Um, and I think the whole talent experience is really weak in general across the entire um, everywhere you go, whether it's, you know, watching my daughter try to work for the YMCA this summer and go through the onboarding process is brutal. It, it shouldn't, you know, we have massive labor shortages. How are, how should it take three weeks to go through a recruitment cycle? That's like, like she's 16, just give her a whistle and, you know, <laughs> set her out there to go lifeguard, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Validate the credentials. Right. Okay. But like, it shouldn't take three weeks. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Those definitely very, very interesting trends that you're mentioning. Um, one of the selfish reasons why I actually launched Ivy podcast is so that I could get an opportunity to learn personally from, you know, successful executives, entrepreneurs like yourself. Uh, but I'm interested in who who do you learn from? Who who do you consider your mentor? Who is who who inspires you and why? Yeah, I mean my um, my mentors are it's a certainly a mix, right? Like, and over the years, I've had many many mentors who've been hugely helpful to me. Um, my father-in-law has been a great business mind. He, he actually owned a staffing business with my mother-in-law for 30 years earlier on hugely helpful to me and you know it, all things leadership to understanding the staffing industry and the mind of and i still bounce ideas off him around um hey you know a good example is last year when the, when the recession hit uh and lockdown hit we were talking about how to treat customers who were in financial need and we talked through, like, how do you help the customer um, and, and how do you make sure that you, 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 don't, um, you don't necessarily, like, create a situation where they can't, they can't work out of whatever credit you're giving them or whatever. And, and it was very helpful um, talking to somebody who's owned a business and thinks like my customer because, you know, I, I'm, I run a technology company and I have lots of experience leader with leadership, but I've never, never actually done the job that my customers do, which, you know, and so if, if you're in that position, you could either say, well, you better run a staffing business and you better be in the, your customer's business, or you better surround yourself with people you can talk to who understand it and who can help you navigate. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do. So I've, I, I view many of my customers as mentors. Um, I view people like Jack Welch as, as a mentor. Um, the book Jack Welch Winning has been incredible for me in helping me build culture. Um, the book Five Dysfunctions of a Team and Death by Meeting by Patrick Lencioni. Um, you know, I don't know either of those people, but those, those, two, those three business books have been hugely helpful to me. And every time I talk to an entrepreneur, I'm like, Hey, here's what I learned from these books. You should go read them. Um, they very seldom do, but I mean, the Lanchoni books are like five minute reads. It's like, come on. But. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, you asked my, you asked my last question that I had for you in terms of what books you have for recommendations. So I appreciate go. those uh, recommendations. We'll make those titles available in the show notes. 
Art, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's very short and insightful conversation. I personally learned quite a bit. Looking forward to staying in touch with you. Perhaps we will uh, see each other in one of the conferences coming up. Thanks so much. All right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.